Christ Presbyterian Church is a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Visit us for morning or evening worship in Mobile, Alabama, or on the web at cpcmobile.com. We will read verses 5 through 13. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose a heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Therefore, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we respect, or should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. That is our New Testament lesson. Please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Stand, please, in honor of the reading of God's word. And we will read Jonah chapter 1. We looked at verses 1 through 3, uh, three weeks ago, uh, when we... Uh, when I was last here, and now we will reread the whole chapter, but we will focus on verses 4 through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word as it is recorded for us by the prophet Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked them, tell us, 
Who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? Who, who, what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them he was. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked them, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And this, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows before him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the great fish for three days and three nights. This ends the reading of God's word for this morning. Let us look to him to illumine us to it by his Holy Spirit. Father, send now your Holy Spirit to illumine your text to our hearts, and we ask that you would exposit our hearts in light of this text. Show us our need of an even greater Jonah, of a prophet who has always obeyed his calling and who didn't accidentally lead to the salvation of Gentiles, but who intentionally saved those outside of his own people. Lord, bless us. Open up our hearts in these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Our topic this morning is discipline. You might have picked up on that through different parts of the service today. We're certainly looking at discipline in the confession of sin and in the Declaration of the Law last week, or actually three weeks ago, in verses 1 through 3, we noted an Old Testament pastor, Jonah, a prophet, to the northern tribes was called to preach the gospel. This is a, a generation, we, we've, we just finished preaching through the entire book of Isaiah. So this is, uh, Isaiah's preaching anywhere between 750 to 705-ish um, B.C., Jonah is a generation before him. So anywhere between 800 to, to 780 is when Jonah is doing his ministry in the northern tribes. Whereas Isaiah preached to Judah, Jonah was going to a different nation, Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh. And Assyria, through Nineveh, was the current oppressor of Israel. 
But Jonah didn't appreciate the grace of God, was to be, that the, the grace of God was to be shed uh, even on his enemies. So he ran. Specifically, he ran on multiple occasions. It says he ran from the presence of the Lord. He ran from the Old Testament mission of the church, which is basically to be a light unto the Gentiles. He hardened himself. He invested financially into his sin. He gave much energy to his idol of nationalism and racism. And a false god who is not bigger than legitimate ethnic and political grievances. This morning, in verses 4 through 17 of chapter 1, we see that the Lord now will start the discipline process. And boy, it's rough. It's almost unbelievable. But even though it's rough, it's peaches and cream compared to what Jonah actually deserves as a sinner. And as a failed, rebellious pastor and officer in the church. And what we're going to find in the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 is a glimpse of just how far Yahweh will go to draw back, to ferociously pursue his man, his anointed one. And this will wake him up. It'll wake him up in light of his sinful character. And it will enable him to be drawn back to the Lord himself. That therefore means that coming to a knowledge of the grotesqueness of our sin, of your unbearable guilt before God, of the cosmic gravity of your offenses, even though hard is part of his grace towards you. Since it actually leads us to see our need of Christ, our constant, ever-present need of him. In in fact, I love the way our confession puts it, even though we were talking about the Westminster Confession uh, and the Shorter Catechism in the, uh, the Sunday School class. It is repentance, doesn't feel like it, but it is a grace of God. Discipline is a grace of God. Now, in the midst of it, we don't feel that way. But just as you don't want a doctor sugarcoating the fact that you have cancer, you also don't want a God sugarcoating your sin. Why? Because it will directly impact how we sense, how how needy we realize that we ought to be of our need of Jesus' atoning mercies. And our desperate need to live daily in communion with him. That means that God makes fruit come out of his response to our wretched sin. Now I said good fruit. I did not say comfortable fruit. I did not say convenient fruit. It is good for us. Oftentimes that which is good for us is not that which is always pleasant. But that's on us. Divine transformation of the sinful heart is never convenient. Never. 
It's never convenient to a worldview grounded on the world and on your flesh or on an idol that you struggle with. It just never is. His discipline proves, though, first, that this life is not about your, preference, your preferences. Is it you? Second, uh, that he is more interested in your enjoying a life of holy communion with him than a life of self-fulfillment. Is that you? Is that you? Or third, that he loves you more than you love your sin. Wow, that's me. I need that. I need a God like that. How then are our lives not a context where God overrules our sin to bring about his glory and good for us? Our main point, therefore, this morning is going to be that Yahweh cultivates much fruit from the discipline of his people. Yahweh cultivates much fruit from the discipline of his people. And this fruit, again, will not always look pretty. But, as one popular theologian and one Puritan would put it, grace does seem to grow best in winter, in trial, in hardship. And we're going to look at this discipline and fruit under four headings. Awakening, discipline, irony, and then more discipline. Because <laughs> that's literally what happens. Awakening, discipline, irony, and more discipline. So then firstly, the Lord awakens, Yahweh awakens his anointed prophet. And you can see this in verses 4 through 10. So Jonah's on the run. He's running from the Lord and his mission to preach the gospel. And the sovereign Lord Almighty, who loves his soul, stops Jonah in his tracks. Take a look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. <laughs> Whoa. Jonah is not going to get his way. His rebellious heart, steering his wheel, uh, his, his will, is not what is best for him, nor to the glory of God. And, but at the same time, Jonah is not a robot. Jonah, God doesn't just snap his fingers, flick a switch, and change his will. Rather, Yahweh seeks to change the soul, the heart, the nature of sinners. And God starts this through... Man recognizing his feebleness before a great storm. Now, there are two ways of looking at the storm. Some think that God has, uh, in his providence, led, to a, led to a, a storm to arrive. Others think that God worked within the created order, ordering the formation of the storm in direct and immediate response to Jonah's rebellion. The language of verse 4, I think... The language of verse 4 uses that the Lord hurled it. That is not an accident. That is not a just so happens to have happened. The second of the two options honors the text. God governs and directs this world to his liking. And like a quarterback cocking his whole body to throw a bomb of a football down the field to his expectant receiver, Yahweh hurls a storm right at this Old Testament pastor. Just chucks it. And beloved, especially 
pastors, officers, uh, deacons or elders, ladies doing ministry, husbands and wives, anyone who has any responsibility, listen to this. Have you ever felt the storm of God's discipline? Have you ever felt it? Are you doing some sin, some clearly nauseous idol that would incur a discipline like this? Some of you would say, uh, yeah, like right now. Some of you might say, yes, been there, been there done that, got the t-shirt. In fact, I have to ask myself the same question. Josh, what sin, what idols, what entrenched rebellious habits and lifestyle could incur this? Flee your sin and your idols. In thanksgiving and out of communion with Christ, pursue the church's mission. Pursue that which is so contrary to your flesh. Pursue that which, uh, pursue, uh, run away from your pride and your arrogance. Build up Christ's kingdom, not your own. Now you'd think, ah, you know, a storm, well that'll definitely wake him up. Uh, that'll make the scales, off, uh, the scales fall off of any person's eye. The Lord used a storm to begin working in Martin Luther's life, although he cried out to a female saint in heaven. But whatever. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning. We've, we've all been through storms even in this year. I mean, literally, like literal storms. We had three in nine weeks. But a storm on the sea where the swells feel like a roller coaster, would shake anyone. Mix that with blinding lightning and thunder that you feel in your bones. Yeah, this is a pretty, this is not a usual bad storm. This is a terrible storm. Notice how the text says it, verse 5. Then the mariners, that is the sea-savvy, weather-tested experts, were afraid. They thought they were near death. The Lord woke up woke them up to their state, and each of them cried out to his God. And so in response, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship out into the sea to lighten the ship for them. So now it's just a madhouse panic on board. They don't care if they'll get yelled at or, or fired for, uh, by their bosses for their lost cargo. They just want to make it through alive. And look, there are legitimate trials that put us into such a panic, that put, it, put us into such a stir, that strike such an essential aspect of who we are that we lose all decorum. And you know what I'm kind of sick of? I'm sick of people who presume that wisdom, really, that really real Christians will be kept uh, untarnished at all times as happy-go-lucky stoics through all of life's pains who just smile their way through darkness. That is nonsense. There are some things that happen in our lives that are meant to make us lose it. This is one of those scenarios, arguably, while a Christian ought to recognize God's sovereignty and his purpose to teach us to depend upon him, and that that brings a level of comfort and even deep-rooted joy beyond trial, that does not mean that the expectation is that you should never become undone. That there isn't some justifiable reason to live for a few days in sweatpants, right? <laughs> Lounging around our house in the dark. 
That's what these men were rightly experiencing. Job did that. No one said, oh, Job, don't you know that it's culturally uncouth to sit in sackcloth and ashes? It's a little too me-centered, honestly. No one ever said it. There are times when the Lord disciplines us in our lives and dinner is not on the table at six o'clock and the, the, the clothes have not been done and you're late to work and, and it's not easy to talk to people and it's hard to have conversation. And you know what? It's an undoing of our lives that pretending that everything's okay masks. You're not meant to be masked in that moment. You're meant to freak out because he is working a huge work in Jonah's heart and life. This is the right response, being undone. But where's Jonah? But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. It's almost, I mean, it's comical, right? This isn't, though, a picture of faith. This is a picture of rebellion. This is the hard-hearted, seared conscience of someone who has no problem calling up, down, and good, bad, and black, white. Jonah can sleep blissfully through terrible storms, not because Jonah is entrusting himself to the God whose presence he's running away from, by the way. No, but is dulled in his senses to the clear and imminent danger of his soul. Doesn't see it. Have you ever been there? It's scary. It's actually scarier to be dulled to playing on the tracks when the train's coming than it is to actually be concerned about yourself. Have you ever done that? What sin do you call good? Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's something regarding work. Maybe it's in the home. Maybe it's against your family. Maybe it's intentionally not knowing the scriptures or communing with pray- in prayer with the Lord. Where do you spend your time feeding your flesh? Almost always indicative of where this thing is. And when you feed it, are you finally comfortable? All things right in the world when I get this every time I get it. You know, it only lasts a few seconds, a minute, maybe. Another way of asking this question is, is what low, sinful view of God have you accepted to justify your sin? Because that's really where the cliff is. He's not really all that holy, right? He doesn't really care that I do this or don't do that. He's not really going to discipline me, right? He doesn't really see all that I do. He doesn't really, uh, uh, he really does want me to use forgiveness as a reason to have as all my sin in Jesus too, right? Certainly that's what he does. Is your sin functionally or fundamentally any different than Jonah's? Does it enable you to run from your redemptive mission as being salt and light here in this world? These things so desensitize us that when experts are fearful, we are not. 
We don't see how close to death we really are. Blissfully unaware when we're playing on the tracks, train coming down on us, and we can't hear mom and dad's bloody murder screams. Warning. So what happens? So the captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean by this, you sleeper? It's kind of interesting to me that the captain accuses Jonah of sending a message by sleeping. And he is. Whether he knows it or not, he is dense to his danger. Band and wave, band of wind and wave of water crashing against the ship. Cra- uh, cra- uh, the planks are cracking and he is blissfully sleeping. Arise, call out to your God. Now, clearly, this captain is still pagan, although that'll change in a little bit. Perhaps the God that the, perhaps the God will give you uh, will give a thought to us, and that we may not perish. Is what he says. But notice that even though he's he's asked by a Gentile to pray to his God, which a prophet should want to do in that moment, notice that Jonah doesn't. In fact, there's no comment at all on his actions. No, oh yeah, good idea, pagan captain man. Nothing. Do we really think Jonah, whose patriotism for ethnic Israel, whose hatred of Assyria and other nations, and who simultaneously is running from the presence of the Lord, will just up suddenly and pray and, and a bunch of pagans to be saved from a boat wreck? No, that's not how this works. Isn't it sad when non-believers are more zealous for their lies idolatry and works righteousness than we are thankfully obedient to the true merciful triune God. Oh, oh, why, why, why do you got to put it that way? How sad is it that they're more shrewd for the world than we are shrewd for King Jesus? Amazingly, even that is forgiven by Christ. This mercy ought to lead to an unparalleled, thankful loyalty. Do you want that? It's far from Jonah, but do you want it? You can call out to the living and true God even right now. Be honest about your sin, your your dark hearts, and appeal to him for his mercies. Ask him for a new heart. Ask him to be treated in Christ alone. Sensitive to sin, sensitive to godliness, inclined to thankfulness, asked to be filled with the spirit of the living God. Don't just sit the way Jonah did here. But conceivably, Jonah just pleads ignorance. That's kind of what he does. There's nothing. He has no response. There's no mention of any prayer. He's so desensitized that even when a pagan sea captain calls upon him to pray to the living and true God in the midst of a terrible storm, it's not ever mentioned. And so they're all running around, panicking, demanding to know whose fault it is. Verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. Now the lot was used in ancient method, is, a, is a, an ancient method of discerning God's will. Typically it's used in cases where doubt as to direction is prominent. It's a little bit like flipping a coin or rolling dice. And you might think, oh yeah, 
this is a super reliable way to find out what God is doing. What could go wrong? However, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16.33. That's how sovereign he is. You can imagine the, the pebbles are rolling around on a sea-tossed deck, and Jonah is just sitting there. Oh, don't land on me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. But the lot fell on Jonah. God. Right? I mean, you ha- he'd have to be exasperated by that reality. It's like the Lord's in control or something. In, in discipline. In discipline, have you ever noticed how many signs that you suppressed in unrighteousness along the way now suddenly pop up as clear warning signs? Even seemingly insignificant things like lots or questions or providences. Jonah is the one who caused this, though. Now, I do want to say something. Because this is hard, because, I want to say it because this is really, really hard stuff to apply to our lives. Just because a bad thing happens doesn't mean you and your sin caused it. But, we can't ignore the text either. Just because a bad thing happens doesn't mean you and your sin didn't cause it. You're welcome. I'm here all week. Because honestly, you may have. God forgives the transgression, but oftentimes makes us live with the consequences. Why? To remind us of the sinful, foolish offense of our flesh towards God, but also of the goodness of a life lived resting on the promises and the promiser. But for now, Jonah has been found out. He is the one. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on account of... Tell us on on whose account this evil has come upon us. And all eyes are now on Jonah. They want to know, who are you? So they ask, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where's your country? What people do you belong to? That'll get to the question. Finally, we're getting down to brass tacks. Who is Jonah? They ask him his identity. Who are you? Where are you from? Now, This question is a big question for a biblical faith. Identity is central to what we believe and why we believe it. And therefore his identity is wrapped up not only with the Old Testament church, but also personally with Yahweh's mercy in particular. And for the first time in this book, the prophet Jonah actually says something true. Yeah, we're eight verses in, but eh. That's not a problem. Yes, it is. He's not just an image bearer of God, but a prophet, an Old Testament pastor, an office bearer. It's his calling to unashamedly declare the Messiah. This is no less true for New Testament office bearers. We are ambassadors for Christ. And it takes nine verses to get to where the man of God finally testifies. It takes pagans asking him point blank, who are you Who's your God? For him to finally profess faith. We forget who we are through entanglement with the world. Jonah's salt isn't so salty, right? His light is somewhat dim. Is it you? 
Now, I'm not saying Jonah isn't saved. If anything, what I'm saying is, is that this is what happens when you have entrenched habitual backsliding. Do you wish this wasn't you? I'm going to even say it again. In, in light of how thoroughly Jesus' atonement covers for all of your sins, in thankfulness for that repentance, it is indeed strange if love like Yahweh's, a ferocious love, doesn't melt a frozen heart. So Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Time out. <laughs> Time out. Wait a second. If you're paying attention at all, that, that, should be an incre- that should lead to an eye roll, right? Really, you fear the Lord at what part so far? The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Suddenly, theology comes spewing out of his heart and soul. All right. So Jonah reveals that God has hurled this storm at him. His God is the God who controls the seas and the dry land. He's the creator of the universe. Everything has now been glued together. We know what the problem is. And not only is God offended, but now his shipmates are offended too. So it is your fault, Jonah. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? (laughs) All right. Apparently, even non-Christians know that it's bad for Christians to not act like Christians. Ever notice that? When pastors don't shepherd, non-Christians can point that out. When officers don't witness or tend, non-Christians can say, eh, probably not the best thing. Or when mom and dads raise their children just like the world, even a non-Christian can say, I don't think that that's what you should believe. Ever noticed? Ever noticed that while the world watches the church, while the world wants the church to approve more and more sexual license, that it clobbers those who are uh, who who say that they are faithful, but then fall. Ever noticed? Why? Because they sniff out a hypocrite and his actions better than we do. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because wait for it. Here's how seared his conscience was. He was blabbing about it before the trip began, and he told them. So Yahweh has awakened his anointed one to his condition. However, I'm pretty sure that I've gone pretty long at this point. So we're going to stop here in the middle of Jonah. He awakens his prophet. Do you need that same awakening? Because here's ultimately where we end up going. We need a prophet way better than Jonah. And in fact, 800 years after this, there'd be another prophet in another boat in the middle of another storm. And his shipmates are freaking out, wondering if this guy even cares. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not a prophet. He is the prophet. And he did not accidentally just so happen save people on accident. But he was fulfilling his mission. He wasn't running from his mission. He was fulfilling it. So that when we don't fulfill our missions, when we fall, when we commit idolatry, when we sin, he took it upon himself. Preached salvation to Jews and Gentiles. So that we might not only be treated as though we never did it, 
but he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we might continue to do the opposite of what Jonah does here. And that is in the context of discipline, he bears forth fruit to make us obedient and thankful for what he has done for our souls. We'll finish this up next week.